Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Michael Kelly, Global Head of Multi-Asset at Pinebridge. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about how you get started in investing? Well, it started somewhere as an undergraduate. I took a course in economics. I was hooked when I graduated. I started looking to go into the field and I found this uh, small little firm called Townsend Greenspan. And there was no Google at the time, and I couldn't really find out a lot of information, but I suspected it was um, Alan Greenspan's firm, small, boutique 20 people. And I'll never forget uh, the interview process. You'd come in for a half day. You didn't know, you just thought you were going to be interviewed, but you were sat down and you had to go through a Fortran programming test, an econometrics test, (laughs) and a macroeconomic theory, and a writing test. And it took all day, practically. And if you made it through that gauntlet, you you were invited back to talk to people. Uh, But it all began there. And uh, his uh, forte was really industrial companies, but financial markets. And I just became, you know, very fascinated uh, with that. And uh, I eventually, he went to become Fed chairman. I migrated over to the equity side of the world. Uh, J.P. Morgan was a stock picker for many years. And um, at the time, there were no mass- multi-asset teams. Every equity business had what was called a balanced book. And I eventually ended up chairing uh, the committee that oversaw those decisions Um, So going from initially top down to bottoms up and then something right in between, and I've always since then liked the right in between. Uh, Markets always seem to be driven by either something macro or micro. You need to know both perspectives to see which is more relevant at the time. But, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun ever since. So what was Alan Greenspan like in those early days? Well, he was... um, a workaholic. Um, he actually, his uh, first marriage lasted a couple of weeks till his wife understood his work habits. Um, to me, that was a learning opportunity because I was willing to work with him over the weekends at a small firm, got to know him very well. But, you know, a, a very, you know, he was a very delightful guy, serious fellow. I remember once we played a softball, we challenged another uh, corporate team. It was GE's corporate softball team where a little team went out. And very few people know, he actually tried out for minor league uh, professional baseball. Right. And I remember he was in his late 50s and here I am, you know, at 20-something 
playing third base, he took first base. <laughs> and right at the start, someone pounded the ball down, down the uh, right to me, and I overthrew first base. <laughs> by a mile and then watched Alan Greenspan running after my long, and he took it very well. He was actually a really nice guy uh, when you knew him well. That sounds like a very interesting introduction as well to uh, Alan Greenspan, not something that most people uh, probably know about him. Um, so you said you were some, somewhere in the middle. Is, is that what attracted you to uh, the multi-asset space where you have sort of that broader overview between the different asset classes? Well, the different perspectives, um, and even today at Pinebridge as a firm, we pride ourselves from being a global but yet multi-asset firm, and we're always trying to bring in multiple perspectives. Uh, we think our industry is, um, you know, too hierarchical. House views dominate. They chase away sometimes younger career people. Um, that may have an edge understanding something that's going on at the time. Um, so, you know, right from the get-go, I learned that there's at least two different views, a macro and a micro. But in reality, there are geopolitical views that you need to grow up in a certain area to understand. Um, people come into our firm with all different educational and professional experiences. And we can all look at the exact same thing and see different things because of those. So I think as an industry, um, when house views chase away differences of opinion, at Pinebridge we're all about getting them to the table. We think if, if we can hear enough really differentiated views from the heart, um, it's pretty easy for the head to detect which one is likely to be more right now. Today, it's morphed to the views that we gain from having investment colleagues coming from 15 different countries and practicing equity and fixed income and private equity and private credit and currency and multi-asset. So today, it's many views, and it's more it's less about being in between those, uh, but being open to all of those and trying to figure out which one is right now. So part of that process is, is dynamic asset allocation. And often when we talk about dynamic asset allocation, the question there is, where do you draw the line between where it's uh, a dynamic asset allocation core or market timing? Well, we've liked the term uh, D as in David, uh, instead of T as in tactical to show our disdain for market timing. Uh, we think tactical is by nature too short in time frame for markets to connect well with fundamentals. To us, uh, dynamic has a connotation to us of medium term, not long term, set it and forget it, not short term Ouija boards and emotions and, and uh, things that certainly I have no skill sets in. Uh, but we do believe, um, certainly when I was an equity person, if I found a stock that seemed to be undervalued and we could contemplate where, where and why a trigger would be out there and we gained conviction in that, you know, um, an inexpensive asset class that has something go right that you can see before it actually happens releases tremendous uh, pent-up value. And we look at markets as if they're individual securities. We look at a currency and a stock market and a bond market as if they're individual securities. And we're looking at the valuation over the medium term. We're looking 
in the intermediate term for a trigger to release that. And uh, even when you're right, and we audit our ideas, and you know we're pretty proud of about you know 60 plus percent of the time we end up being right for the right reason. But even you know when you're right about that, when that stock market reacts to that, is uh, is tough. So, um, you know, we don't try to time market. We try to get the bigger things about right. Doesn't sound very ambitious, <laughs> but that's pretty hard to do. Um, it helps a lot if you have a lot of help across many different geographies and different teams and really a great team within your team. Um, but uh, again, we uh, don't think of what we do as uh, market timing. It's just buying you know, uh, buying a, a market the same way you would buy a security. Now, you've done this for, for quite a long time. Um, can you tell us uh, some examples of, of surprising twists in the markets or calls that you made that played out well and some that played out not so well? Uh, well, the one, the one we're most proud of is, um, you know, we've been very optimistic in recent years and often I get the question, are you a permable? <laughs> <laughs> and people have all kinds of polite ways to ask that. But we were very proud of, uh, in 2007, we actually took uh, our portfolios, which at the time had about 75% growth assets, and we shifted them to about 75% safety before the crisis began. And so that as well, we didn't think is market timing. Uh, there was clearly no slack left in the economy. We always triangulate towards the truth. And um, at, that was a top-level concept. At the bottom level, profit margins were under tremendous strength. You know, any incremental growth was happening at great cost. And you could see it top-down, bottoms-up. The economy was out of running room. And it meant that cash flows in the future were highly likely to be lower than they were at the present. Uh, and yet prices were high as if growth could continue forever. Um, that was a valuation argument. When we buy securities, it's only half of what we do. The other half is where's the trigger? And interestingly, uh, the trigger was something that, uh, frankly, we were watching for about 20 years. It was the slowest motion train wreck I've ever seen. And while, you know, there are all kinds of books about how greedy Wall Street uh, was and I'm not going to defend Wall Street by this comment, but uh, the fact of the matter is um, it was a matter of economic and social policy to boost home ownership. And the way Congress in the United States attempted to do that was they literally passed legislation that forced the banks to lend more and more to subprime mortgages. And then they got greedy. And it wasn't only more and more, but it was at lower and lower safety scores, what are called FICO scores. And eventually, uh, those uh, you get it into the hands in such a big way as a percentage of a bank's capital that it's, you know, you've gone too far. And that happened over 20 years, but it was in 2017 that you could begin to see that unraveling. And so... Um, you know, it's kind of like a detective movie. Is there motive? Is there opportunity? And uh, we could see why that would turn over. And so we could see how the fundamentals would begin, you know, to end their rise and begin their decline and things looked over that. So that's the one I'm most proud of. Um, you asked, uh, again, very politely share some of your bloopers with us. And in uh, the financial markets, 
if you have enough bloopers and you learn from half of them, you're called experienced. That's kind of, <laughs> that's a low bar, but that's what experience means. And so I'm very experienced. <laughs> and uh, I guess the one that uh, still surprises me the most is um, in 2016, how uh, when the ECB uh, decided to uh, go with negative interest rates, that didn't surprise us. But to this day, I'm shocked how that collapsed the entire yield curve in the medium and long earned when they took, uh, when you're in positive territory and you take short rates down, quite often markets say, aha, you're stimulating. And in time, things will get better and the long end moves up. This time, by going negative, they actually collapsed the entire yield curve. Um, and we certainly did not see that coming. And I put that under kind of my biggest blooper. So is that, uh, you think, looking back on that now, a result of people didn't know what to expect uh, at negative interest rates? And, and so this idea that uncertainty is, is the worst condition for financial markets? Well, uh, we're still trying to put together all the pieces. A lot of people would say we've been in this post-crisis slow recovery where the demand has just been way too slow and therefore interests are, interest rates have shown you that. We only think that's probably about a third of the reason. The other two-thirds is that, you know, we still, in 2020, on my clock, the financial crisis ended in February 2009. So isn't it interesting that in 2020, February 2020, we still have crisis-orientated monetary policy? Uh, we've still been ballooning central bank balance sheets and taking yield curve-orientated debt out of the hands of private investors. So markets have gone up a lot since then, but the supply of, if you will, hedging vehicles through government bonds has been shrinking, and they need to keep up parapassu with the markets. You need a a fair balance between those assets. So there's been an increasing scarcity value, which had pulled down yield curves prior to going negative. Um, but then the with the short rate, I think a lot of people inferred the central banks must know something nefarious that we don't know. Uh, growth must be even slower. Oops, you know, looking over our shoulders, general always fight the last wars. You can see 2016, from that point onward, people have been trying to call the next recession. Um, and I think that that was a turning point in a lot of people's heads to say it must be late. Look at the calendar. Look how many years have gone by. Why would central banks be acting in this desperate way? But, uh, you know, I think uh, the real answer is, um, you know, somewhat still a little bit unknowable. Um, because most of us were shocked at the way the entire curve collapsed, not just the short end. So that's, it is an interesting time in that perspective. To slightly shift gears, recently Pinebridge was named as one of the, the partners of SunSuper, a, a big pension fund here in Australia. And as part of that partnership, uh, they like to give each of them some research assignments. 
And for PrimeBridge, that uh, resulted into an assignment on active versus passive and how to use it and when to use it in which markets. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, um, that research and, and, and your thoughts around it? Um, yes, that homework assignment, if you will. And uh, sure. Well, when we talk about being dynamic, what we really mean is that um, we're a very high active share multi-asset manager instead of strategically always owning the same asset classes in roughly the same proportions with a little bit of the T word, a little of the tactical navigation around that. We aspire to owning everything over time. We follow about 80 asset classes, but only about 20% of that at any given time. So when we talk about being dynamic to us, the big lever we pull is which of those asset classes should we own now for the next three, four years? And then we may not own them again for a decade. Um, the second le lever we pull is once we decide on a market, a secondary decision for us is always, should we own that market passively, actively, or in a low-risk uh, managed somewhere in between type of product. And, and um, SunSuper knew that we had that practice. Um, it's a little bit different than how other people do. So yes, they asked us to uh, share our, our methodologies and our thinking on you know, why we do that and how we do that. And it certainly contrasts with many people's view that there are markets that are somehow so efficient don't even bother go passive and others that are like uh, shooting the uh, proverbial duck in a pond. They're so easy, always be active. You know, those there's certainly elements of truth to that. There are markets that are more efficient than others, but there's still reasonably long periods where a very inefficient market can trade much more efficiently and vice versa. Uh, and these things can be measured, you know, for seven or eight years. Um, and so we're aware of what we think drives that. Um, you know, we can't uh, predict with precision what those will be. But to us, they're just another 60% hit rate, right? Life is, you know, um, in a lot of other professions, you feel pretty terrible if you only write 60% of the time. But Warren Buffett uh, coaches us on saying, you know, 60% is pretty good. We think we can make this call, when to be active, when to be passive in a market we like, about 60% of the time. And so we do it. Now, you write in the paper that uh, markets move in cycles where sometimes correlations are high, sometimes correlations are low, and, and the same for dispersion. And that these two things influence how successful managers can be in adding alpha. Can you explain that a bit further? Sure. So um, our work focuses not only on cycles, uh, but also on longer-term regimes. And to me, a business cycle is um, something can be overheated or underheated, and it works its way out over the course of a business cycle. Regimes are where there are persistent imbalances that go beyond a business cycle. Um, China enters WTO in 2001. Well, you bring an extra billion people into the workforce and you're going to have too much stuff for a long, long time. It's going to last well beyond one business cycle. And so there are physical imbalances. You can live in the 60s and 70s. We had uh, perpetually 
too much demand and too little supply in the physical world. We also had in the liquidity world, we had uh, just the opposite. We had a lot of inflation and money was escaping from financial markets into real assets. And so the supply and demand for liquidity was very, uh, you know, different than in the... So these regimes all persist for quite some time. Uh, we've identified five different regimes empirically, and they all have correlation footprints. And these correlation footprints give rise to these periods where it's easier or harder for active management to, to do. We've been in... Uh, what we call a stall speed environment. It's not the first one. Um, Japan had a stall speed environment, you know, just in their country for 20 years. The world had a stall speed environment in the 30s and 40s. The world, again, has a stall speed environment, you know, from, uh, you know, 2009. And we're still in it. We're still stuck in this very, you know, slow demand. But demand is growing. Uh, Supply is chronically outgrowing it. There's no pricing pressure. Um, and yet in the liquidity world, uh, we still have crisis-orientated uh, monetary policy. The fire hoses are still on at full force, um, even though there's no demand for liquidity. And so those backdrops, um, this particular backdrop has uh, just, we were talking about the yield curve and people using the yield curve to infer growth and demand and that's only been part of the story why the yield curve is done. But the central banks in that line of thinking have uh, reinforced kind of a perpetual pessimism that's existed post-crisis. When you're pessimistic um, and when every asset class owner is pessimistic, they share something in common. And anything shared in common boosts correlations. Um, and when correlations across asset classes are high, it means correlations within securities in those asset classes are typically high as well. And so if you're a great security selector and you can see how a business is fundamentally changing, they're coming out with a new product, they're doing a restructuring before the market does, when you're right about a lot of things for the right reason and you have a good batting average, but you have high pairwise correlations, that means it's, it's more of a stock market and not a market of stocks. It's a sea of stocks going up and down more in unison than they normally do. And so that doesn't mean it's harder for a stock picker to pick the winners. It just means when they do, they're not differentiated as much as versus the losers. And the other phenomenon is more episodic. It's the dispersion of returns within a market. And that can be driven by a lot of things that are policy-driven, that are technology-driven, that can cause winners and losers to either be more muted or be more dominant. And those types of environments are also not a flash in the pan. We're not talking about a couple months risk-on, risk-off. Um, they tend to be. So we've been in a bit of a golden era for passive during the stall speed environment. And we don't think that's going to last forever. We have a couple ideas of why and when it will end, but as long as it is the way it is, we've traversed this period, you know, for somebody who philosophically is an active firm. Uh, so we've, we've uh, had a lot of 
active products throughout, but a lower portion of our overall than we normally do during this period and more passive than we normally do during this period. Fair enough. So with these cycles um, uh, going up and down, what are some of the tools that you use to identify them? I think you made a reference to some asset allocation tools can be applied there, but can you tell us a little bit about how you identify the cycles and, and the shifts? Well, we have no magical tool that gives us an answer. We build a lot of tools, but the tools are trying to help us um, calibrate something we believe to be true into financial metrics that we can use for portfolio management. So the, the trick is not in the tool. The trick is how do you, how do you, um, how do you assemble views which are not yet broadly recognized and priced into markets? You know, people talk about doing that with securities. It's the same with markets. Um, and I already touched on that. A lot of it is getting differences of opinion. Uh, you know, many people speak of the, uh, you know, this, um, there's a whole bunch of studies where people, the wisdom of crowd type studies, where they ask individuals to guess the weight of a cow. And individually, it's humiliating how far they off. But the crowd quite often will come very close to the weight of the, if you bring in enough different perspectives, and as an industry, again, we're horrendous at doing that. Our whole strategy process is, is geared towards bringing in different opinions because we think when you know it, you hear it. Um, but uh, we chase away different views by house views, by seniority, by a lot of just cultural practices that are common in the investment community. Um, so we really rely on our colleagues, uh, 200 of us in these 15 countries practicing all these things to, to bring, you know, different perspectives that is that collectively we just get it right a lot more than anyone individually gets that cow's weight right. So what does that mean? It means the stall speed um, environment. Well, um, we can look at the correlation footprint and say the market thinks we're in this slow growth, depressing environment. Do we believe that that will continue? How long? Why? Many, many different views. And if you do, you're still in that regime and correlations will still be high across and within asset classes. And then, you know, that's not the end of the story. The other half of the story is dispersion. And a dispersion of uh, success or lack of success has a lot to do with corporate behavior. When companies are very confident, and in every industry, there's somebody that has an edge. Um, and when the environment fosters those that have an edge to push their advantage, they put a lot of competitive distance between themselves and the laggards, and you get more dispersion of opportunity. We're actually beginning to see that now in the last several years. Um, you see that with some groups like the FANGs breaking out, pushing their advantage. But, you know, for most of the post-crisis period, um, we weren't seeing that behavior. We were seeing people, they, they lacked a lot of confidence. They didn't spend as aggressively against the cash flows and the dispersion of success, if you will, within an industries is muted. So that's one that we tend to watch more bottoms up to see when the animal spirits rise and begin being deployed, 
um, we would expect a dispersion of success or failure to rise. And that's another big driver of when to be active or when to be passive. So this idea that in some cycles, um, active management uh, brings more fruit to the table than yep. in other cycles. How um, commonly accepted would you say that is? I can imagine that there's a, a fast uh, number of your fund manager mm -hmm. competitors that say, no, we can outperform all the time. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, but um, I'd say it, it's not that um, commonly accepted. Uh, well, first of all, yes, if, if you're going to be active, why are you going to have a, a sustainable edge? And uh, markets are really smart. And even if you have an edge, they're always trying to take the edge away from you. Uh, but despite that, we're a big believer that uh, good managers exist and come up with really great, you know, idiosyncratic ideas. And you can find them as a manager selector. Again, for us, this is our secondary gig. Uh, but even for us, we have success finding those managers. So, but is that the accepted norm? I'd say no. I'd say the accepted norm is there are markets always and everywhere that are very efficient, don't even bother, just be passive. And there are some that are always inefficient, you know, always go full bore out active there. I think that the consensus view, and we're not saying it's wrong. It's just that it has to be nuanced a bit. Um, efficient markets have periods, um, you know, for three, five years where they can become much less efficient um, and vice versa. And um, instead of just looking backwards and saying, historically, this one has been efficient or hasn't been, uh, you can actually look forward and say, you know, those markets that have been more or less efficient, well, let's actually measure two things. Let's measure the pairwise correlations in those markets um, and let's measure the dispersion of returns in those markets. And let's be on the alert for what causes those things to change. And when we see a change, let's then expect that maybe for periods of five years, that may be very different. I'll give you an example. So one is, um, you know, it's broadly accepted that small cap stocks in most markets are less efficient uh, than large cap. And in US small cap, something very different has happened than in, let's say, European small cap or emerging market small cap or Japanese small cap, which is that, um, you know, the feeding ground of younger companies that attracted some success and then went public has been interfered with because uh, post-crisis, we've had such a boatload of regulation that a public company must meet that it's made it too expensive for a small company to be public. And so today, most of them just skip the going public until they're much larger. And what that means is the dispersion of really different business models has shrunk. And if you look at the hit rates of U.S. small cap managers who tend to outperform, you know, most five-year periods are in the high 50s, low 60s. In the last five-year period, it's uh, it's below 50%. So, you know, if dispersion or correlation change, predictably, um, that market sufficiency will change. Now, it's not predictable. Looking forward, 
if the correlations or the dispersions will change. But again, for for that reason, uh, we did think that um, okay, it's they're skipping going public. We understand why it's going to persist for a long time, and um, we've we've uh, held our are small within the United States in a passive form, even though we've held it in Europe and Japan and elsewhere in an active form. It's interesting because that um, development that companies stay private for longer, and, and so some of that growth doesn't uh, come through the, the listed markets anymore. I think some fund managers have thought about it in the sense that okay, maybe we need to add a little bit of private assets in a otherwise listed portfolio. What is your view on that? A growth-oriented venture, um, sure. I, I don't think that's the dominant reason one should be in private assets or public assets, but it's a uh, it's a contributing reason for that. Um, and you know, the the venture space has done you know really well because many of those burgeoning young business models stayed in in private hands in venture money. And uh, some of them grew up to be, you know, Jack in the in in the, the they just went to the sky. So, you know, before you'd have seen those in in the public market. Yeah. So, are public markets in danger of losing their relevance? Oh, I don't think so. Um, you know, things will go things will go back and forth. Um, more and more of the companies are private. We've had a shrinkage of companies, at least in the United States, that are public. Um, this won't go on forever. Things will change. Um, but, you know, for right now, um, that's those have been the trends. Again, I'm attributing a big part of that from overkill of regulation um, that's followed the crisis of what it takes to be a public company. Um, that can change in a heartbeat. Um, but it needs, you know, recognition that that's, that's one of the things driving it to begin with. And, uh, but I, I do think we'll, we'll tend to see these things go back and forth. Now, recently you updated your research into the active-passive question with uh, adding in ESG and what ESG policy, uh, policies do to the treatment of, of particularly passive strategies. Does that lead to the idea that there is no true passive anymore? Interesting, interesting question. In the active space, uh, we've challenged all of our teams to really build out ESG frameworks starting in 2006. But uh, when we go, when we've gone passive, we, and I think most asset owners, multi-asset managers or microcosm of big asset owners, most of us have given passive a hall pass. Okay, we decided to go passive. It's okay to own every stock in an index, irrespective. And that's just the way it is. And at the same time, most large asset owners and we have shifted our mix towards passive. So at the same time, we're all advocating, you know, much greater stewardship and involvement. Um, we're going passive. So what we've updated is our framework for good stewardship and saying, why does passive get the hall pass? and we're also in a period where we're everyone's doing a lot of work. It's interesting. Ten years ago, um, ESG advocates said this was the key to alpha. Gold coins will just fall from the ceiling. And the detractors said this is the biggest destruction of security selection value ever. 
what's changed in the last 10 years is it's we've moved away from proponents and detractors doing white papers, um, which really just, there wasn't a lot of science to the white papers, to really good, well-done papers. And what they tend to show is whether your uh, ESG characteristics are good, and they've been good for a while, is not really linked with alpha. And if you're bad and have been bad for a while, it's not really linked with alpha. It's when it changes, when it migrates from being bad to being good, it releases value, uh, most likely because you're risk-reducing the cash flows you have. And companies that have pursued that pace, obviously they saw a lot of low-hanging fruit to risk-reduce without spending so much money. It's been a net positive and risk-adjusted returns have come up. It's released value. So I think that actually has a lot of implications of how you hold your passive. It's okay to own uh, some areas of the world and some constituents. Um, I know the universities feel very much that exclusion is the best way to improve behavior. We have always felt exclusion sends a message. You know, you 25%, you're the chosen ones. Uh, maybe there's another 10%. We might consider everybody else, two-thirds of the word, don't even try. You're uninvestable. Is that the way that you're going to drive most companies to try to improve? And in areas like climate, what's driving this is there's a, there's a sense of urgency now. So we've always uh, focused more on improvement. But in the last five years, there's a lot of good rigorous work. That's actually what's releasing it. And many say, well, no, it's just higher quality companies and higher quality companies happen to have done better. Industry by industry, those that are migrating up are releasing value to those that are not. So it's not all style and things like this. So anyway, what this means, for us at least, is a framework is uh, just uh, becoming crystal clear to us. We don't select securities as a multi-asset team. We select managers, but in our manager selection process, uh, we really scrub their ESG practices. How are you really interacting with these companies? How are you taking that into consideration, the integration of their cash flows and the risk to those cash flows, the improvements? So when we allocate to active, you know, we can buy a market that you may look at the market and the practices of the country and say, how do you get comfortable with that? Well, we're not buying the country. We're buying individual companies that they're really doing something to improve the status quo. And um, that's good for the world. It's actually the best thing in the world. It keeps everybody trying to improve and it's good for value. But the hall pass has to disappear. And if you're going to be, you know, Buffett says he doesn't like to practice gin rummy management. Something's not working out. Just flip the company. Where's the commitment with that? Passive really has to be, if we're saying we're going to buy every single security and hold it no matter what, then you have to measure every single security's ESG trends. Is it unacceptable? Yes. Is it improving? Well, okay. Is it unacceptable and not improving? Okay. You are committing yourself. Passive is no longer going to be a passive um, investment experience for those uh, you know, unacceptable practices that are not making efforts for improve, you're going to have to engage more. And if they're not showing sense of change, you're going to have to vote 
against the company instead of voting with your feet and selling the security. So our changes are just recognizing that by being passive, we're committing ourselves to being even more active in our engagement and voting practices with those with those companies. And you really can't just pass the buck and hire a passive uh, indexer. There are a lot of studies also coming out and saying, you know, they're not all created equally. Mm. Uh, you're going to have to look at their ESG practices just like you look at an active manager's uh, because some of them are making big statements but taking small actions uh, to really encourage improvement. Yeah, and this has been a very interesting uh, uh, research paper. What's in the pipeline? Well, I'm <laughs> the world throws enough your way where we don't actually just go out looking for, for projects. But the world's always evolving, and you always have to be evolving how you do what you do. We're in a world where post-crisis, uh, because, uh, you know, it's interesting, in 2009, a lot of people say, wow, what just happened and what does it mean for the future? And most came up with the same conclusion that uh, after every financial crisis ever, the Reinhard Rogoff people actually went back eight centuries to chronicle this. You have a period, at least a decade of low uh, nominal and real interest rates. Now, we knew that was the case, but really economic data didn't go back in any you know vigorous way prior to the 1940s. So we knew it was the case. We just didn't know why it was the case. Now we know why. Because the pessimism that follows it means people underinvest and underconsume, and therefore the savings rate goes up. And if it goes up and it hovers high for a long time, you end up with a global savings glut. So we've probably had a global savings glut at the end of every financial crisis and just didn't know it. But the low real and nominal rates are kind of the clue. But this one is the first one ever ever, ever, where we have a central bank save the world balance sheet glut on top of a naturally formed. One uh, very clever uh, investor called this Hotel California. These gluts when you get into, you know, you can try to check out, but you can never leave type thing. Uh, we'll leave them eventually. We'll get out of them. But it's more of a regime than a cycle. These imbalances are, are longer lasting. There's been a growing imbalance between the amount of capital and the operating cash flows to invest in. At the big asset class level, everything is very expensive. Uh, but because of what we were talking about before, because some companies are starting to step out and press their advantage, um, we're entering a very disruptive period for business models. And that means there's going to be even though you know the averages are very likely to be lower, the dispersion is going to be very likely to be higher. And so if you buy just a big asset class, uh, you're buying the bad with the good. And the bad are going to be a lot worse than they've been, and the good will be a lot better. So uh, in terms of the refinements, um, we've been spending a lot of time finding pockets with inequity and fixed income and currency and commodities um, that are likely to really stand out. They're hitting their mojo, even though it's a fairly depressed environment. Yeah, yeah. Interesting times ahead. Well, Michael, thank you very much for making the time to have a chat with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www dot i3-invest.com Thank you very much.